This is B-Side. <laughs> Woo! Eat it. Eat the microphone. This is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook, and I'm sitting in my home office, flanked by hounds. What? Flojo and Laszlo are here, my two basset hounds. And this show is about, in essence, being in your home office. <laughs> in a place where you can both take care of your dogs all day and take care of business. And to that end, I am traveling over cyberspace to have an interesting conversation with somebody else who knows a lot about work as life and life as work, the theme of this show. And that is Heather Armstrong, aka Deuce.com. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good. Good, thanks. Um, you're at home too, huh? I am at home. But you um, tell our B-side people, I'm sure they know already because it's the right kind of audience, but tell them about what you do for a living. I um, have had a website, a personal website, um, since February of 2001, so almost exactly five years. And um, this past year, I was able to take it somewhat full-time, and my husband was able to leave his job, and he's come home, and that's... That's what supports our family, is my very, very personal website. <laughs> um, I want to sort of take our B-side listeners back to the beginning, because it's really, I mean, one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you about work is life and life is work is because ever since you started this thing, your, your work life has been enmeshed in your blog. You got fired because of it, didn't you? I did. Uh, about a year after I started it, <laughs> you know, it was a dark period in my life in the sense that I really didn't like what I was doing professionally. And I wrote a lot about that on my website, which I don't recommend you do unless your boss knows that you're doing it. <laughs> I never wrote about where I, exactly I worked and I never used names in my posts, but some anonymous person found out where I worked and emailed the address of the website to all the vice presidents of the company. And I was CC'd on the email, and when it came into my inbox, I about died. Then when my when my boss got the email, she was devastated, and and understandably so. I had said some really mean and nasty things, and and I've learned from that. I mean, I, I was it was really horrible what I did. Did it all, did they almost get more um, publicity though in firing you? <laughs> well, I never mentioned that. I've never let anyone know what the company is for that reason. Huh. Okay. Well. Today on B-Side, we have a story for you about a person who doesn't have a job to lose. In fact, Allison Rahm has spent the last four months sifting through newspapers looking for work. She's a self-proclaimed workaholic. And out of work, Allison has had time to explore exactly what unemployment and employment mean to her. She had help from her boyfriend, Dave. And Allison created an audio diary to document this emotional roller coaster ride i'm freaking out because i don't have a job and i feel almost like i'm empty inside i feel like there's something missing which leads me to believe that for years and years i've defined my personality or my being or my persona by what job i was doing and i almost feel like this is not a good thing isn't it driving you crazy? It's driving me out of my mind. But is it really that healthy to be, I mean, so consumed by your work that you feel empty when your work's not there? Is that healthy? 
Don't get me wrong, there are real benefits to being unemployed. I sleep at least 10 hours a night, I read and practice yoga, and much to my boyfriend's surprise, I've even started cooking. Well, what do you think about my cooking? It's been nice, you know. I think soups are a good start. What? <laughs> I think the ne next step of, uh, you know. You don't like my soups? No, I love your soups. Your soups are great. I don't have a job. Now I feel like a piece of the pie is missing. That there's this void within me that has been created since I became unemployed. You know, I have days where I just really don't feel like getting out of bed. I have days when I just really feel like not searching the job section because I'm going to find truck driving and because I'm going to find telemarketing. And that's not what I'm interested in. Do you think I should be a truck driver? No. You don't want to be a truck driver, trust me. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think you need to find your dream job, but I think there's other jobs you're looking at that can be good enough. You're looking at this one job you've got an interview at for tomorrow. It sounds like it'd be the perfect job for the time being. A small design firm was looking for a production assistant. My first interview was a group interview, and let's just say I was very surprised to get a call back. I had like waves of nervous energy running through my body. I felt like a teapot that was ready to explode, that was ready to boil over. My heart was racing, my entire body was shaking. I had so much adrenaline running through my body, I could have just blown up. Mm. Part of me is also like, I like being unemployed. I like having my free time and you know, that's a lot of hours of my day that are going to be eaten up at work, and I'm not going to be able to do everything. So what, you want me to be your sugar daddy? <laughs> Is that an offer? <laughs> <laughs> I think that we need to feel like we're productive in whatever way, in a, whatever we're doing, whether we're make, getting a paycheck or not. I think if I get this job, I think that that might be the missing piece. After my second interview, I suddenly started feeling that this really could be the job for me. So, tell me what happened. So, I just had my interview, and yeah. it went really well. Yeah? And I'm one of three. One of three finalists? Yeah. Crazy. And I'm just so nervous right now because I can't believe I'm one of three, and I cannot believe that I'm one of three after that horrible group interview. <laughs> Now I really want the job! Yeah, now you really want the job. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope you get it, baby. And then I got the phone call. Uh, hello, this is Allison. Okay, so what happened? You said they called earlier? Yep, they called. And? And they didn't offer me the job. Hmm. What'd they say? Um, they didn't give me a whole lot of details. They just said that they had decided to go with the other candidate. In some ways, I feel a sense of relief because I won't have to work a full-time job. But on the other hand, I'm disappointed because it seemed like a really awesome opportunity. So, where are you going to go from here? I have no idea. Hmm. <laughs> Back to square one. Yeah. I mean, there's other things I'm waiting to hear on. There's other jobs that I found in the paper. 
So I'm back at square one again. I know I'll find something soon, even if it's not my dream job. But when I do, there are still some aspects of unemployment that I know I'm going to miss. Harry Potter. What am I going to do without Harry Potter? Well, you're almost done with the last book anyway. <laughs> you could always start over from the beginning. Yeah, I've done it a couple times. <laughs> That's Allison Rom. She now lives in Ohio and is still looking for a job. Each day you go home with no pay. It's like you're on holiday. We're back at B-Side. I'm talking to Heather Armstrong of Deuce.com. And um, you, let's let's keep going with the, with the story of your life here. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, so, so basically after you got fired from your job because of blogging, the blogging became your job. It, it did. Um, when I lost my job, um, I sort of, sort of confronted with um, what the hell have I just done? And, you know, what have I become? And am I happy with the person that I am? And I took it down for about six months and reassessed, you know, what was going on. And I've come back to the medium having learned that there are specific boundaries that I really need to respect in order for this to work. That is so fascinating because from as, as, a, as a reader of your blog, it almost seems um, personal boundaryless. but maybe that's just because we're not used to hearing people talk about, you know, constipation and stuff. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are the boundaries for you? Um, first and foremost, I wouldn't, I, I, um, I don't write anything about my family that would damage our relationship. Everything that I write about my family is something that I would say in conversation over dinner to them. So, for example, I know that your mother is the Avon World sales leader and your step you have a stepfather who's married to her and that they have this um, sort of rustic cabin that is out in the middle of nowhere and um, that they um, are Mormons and they think you're going to hell. Um, I don't... Going to hell. I'm going to the third level of heaven. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. The third level that it is reserved for for um, you know murderers and rapists and and people who publish curse words on on the uh, internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but I mean you know talking about this as your work, it it sounds like you'll tell the internet, all of us, um, sort of anything about yourself. I do. Is that true? I, I, I'm this open in person as it is. I, you know, I, not that I'll tell the person at the grocery store that I haven't, you know, used the bathroom in four days, but, <laughs> you know, talking with friends and, and sitting around talking at dinner, you know, I'm pretty open about my life and I'm pretty open about the details. And my website sort of reflects that. You know, there's some, there are some intimate details of my life that I've never shared. You know, there's intimate details about my marriage that I've never shared. And those things are sacred. And I, I, I don't know if anyone who really has a website understands that, you know, what we write about ourselves is sort of we pick and choose the story that we're telling. It's not a whole story of my life. And, and, and that's, how, that's how it's not an, an, a strict diary, I would say. I mean, when is there ever a thought that you have of like... Um... Okay, it's time to get to work. 
Oh, all the time now. All the time. Is that like one of the, the problems with work is life and, and life is work? I mean, you there's no distinction, so there's no go home and, and leave it at the office? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do, my, my readership is pretty vocal, um, both positively and negatively. And if I go a day without updating, I get a slew of email going, you're not keeping your end of the bargain, and I'm so disappointed, and how can you do this to me? Do you, when you're going through regular daily life, you're at the grocery store, you're at, um, you know, wherever, um, do you think, oh, there's there's some content? All the time. <laughs> All the time. My husband will say something, he'll go, you can totally use that. I'll let you. <laughs> Thanks, sweetie. <laughs> the idea that we put a lot of ourselves into our work is something a lot of people understand. It's perhaps the way we connect with our jobs so that we can stand having one in the first place. I want to play a story about a map maker who makes pretty deep philosophical connections that tie together his job and his place in the universe on that map. B-side contributor Eve Abrams has this profile of Mark Adams, who makes maps for a living. Everybody says they love maps, but I don't think people understand why they love maps. What is it that fascinates them? You can try to describe things in words, but there's a big aha when you put it down visually somehow. Okay, here are some of Mark's maps. They show where in Cape Cod there are swamps, tidal pools, different kinds of vegetation. This one is really colorful, and uh, you can see how the coastline's been changing since 1891. It's weird. You'd think someone who makes maps for a living likes knowing where he is. Well, not necessarily. I've been places mapping they feel so remote. You know, like deep in the marsh. There's these tall reeds and cattails. You can't even see the sky sometimes. It's, it's disorienting. It's bigger than us, even though in the scheme of things, it's tiny. You know, I like, I like getting lost. How come? Oh, because you might discover something new. You like getting lost, yet you make maps for a living. Yeah, yeah, isn't that funny? I do get lost, even places I shouldn't get lost. But it's all a matter of like what your viewpoint is. You know, you can enter the marsh and be um, pretty lost and only be a few hundred meters away from a road. It's a really, it's magical feeling to be out and a little bit out of control, a little bit have a sense of that there is a world that's bigger than whatever we can dial up on the screen. Clearly, finding his way around wasn't Mark's primary motivation for being a map maker, but maybe finding his place was. You know, you don't have to call yourself spiritual or religious to be uh, overwhelmed by the dome of the night sky or the expanse of the ocean goes back to our um, origins. We're animals on the planet. And I don't mean that to take any of the dignity away from human beings, but I mean it in the sense of we live in a world of physics and biology and other forces that we don't understand, and we're creatures of that. Despite our houses and our cities, as humans, our habitat is nature. Maps help us understand the natural world. I guess that's why it fascinates me, because it's a way of reconnecting to this world. But our world is complex. Conveying that in a map seems like an overwhelming task. One of the things that 
anybody who makes maps and that most scientists understand right away from the start is that you can only express a very simplified version of reality. So as map makers, we just sample the environment. We simplify it. We generalize it. So doesn't it sometimes seem arbitrary, these lines that you're drawing? They're completely arbitrary. But they have some value. My friend Todd, who listens to toads, he goes out at night and he listens to the calls of the Fowler's toad. So my map becomes really useful to him because he can look at the map here in the building and know where to go to listen for toads. A few times he's called me up on his cell phone and he put the uh, cell phone like right down next to the puddle so that I got this message of the toad doing his breeding call into my cell phone. End of message. And how else can you get a phone call from a toad? Maps don't just find toads. It's a treasure hunt. And you make the treasure maps. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope I can. So, you know, sometimes you don't have all the, all the information. And again, all I'll do is make some more layers to the map, and in 100 years, somebody else will put them all together and find the treasure. Hopefully it's still there. When I think of treasure, I picture a chest of gold coins and clunky jewelry, a pirate's bounty. But Mark's treasure is more fundamental. It's discovering a piece of how the world fits together. The stuff that's most exciting is when you you suddenly see something for the first time that was always there. It makes you realize what life is for, I think. You know, we're in this complex, dynamic, interesting world. You know, it's scary and wonderful and um, bigger than you could ever imagine. It's fantastic. You know, take a walk, um, get out there. That was Mark Adams talking to B-Sides Eve Abrams. Eve lives in Brooklyn and loves maps. Her Honda Civic's glove compartment is stuffed full of AAA foldables. I wonder if we can ever really keep ourselves separate from our work. I mean, if you think of life and work as two separate entities, isn't that really just kind of kidding yourself in a way? Today I'm talking to Heather Armstrong of Deuce.com who, who stares this issue of life and work right in the face every day. She's managed to make her life her work through her website where she writes about her life and it pays for her life. How, why do you think it's successful? I mean, you recently, I mean, getting back to the idea of work is life and life is work, um, you recently started putting ads on the site. I understand that made a lot of people really angry, but I have to say, um, I found it just to be fascinating that there are enough of us sort of fascinated by um, the details of your life and how open you are about them that that you can sell, you can sell ads um, for that. Right, yeah. I, this has been m much more successful than, than my wildest imagination. I think it has to do a lot with that I'm, repre I'm, I'm representing a perspective on a suburban life and, and marriage and motherhood that a lot of people identify with. Um, and it's a voice it's a voice to be reckoned with in the sense that, you know, that's a huge demographic out there that responds to my perspective on things. Um, and what's really interesting and fascinating is I get a lot of email from like uh, college boys you know, or, or older men who say, I have nothing in common with you, but I cannot stop reading the details of your life with your husband because you write about it in a way that 
makes me care about you. Well, I have to say that is, um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of reasons why Deuce.com um, appeals to me because I'm, you know, a young professional, 30, early 30s, pregnant, you know, all of these different reasons. Um, but it's really the writing. I mean, the... And I, and I understand that as somebody who writes also. I mean, you are just an amazing writer. Um, and I wonder if you could, could you, like, are you sitting in front of a computer? Could you pull up, I don't know, something that you liked recently and, and read it? And it isn't a particularly funny part of it, but this is one of my favorite parts. Let's see. Uh, two nights ago, you came down with your first fever. This is speaking to Lita. Um, I, I, I write the newsletters as if I'm speaking to her. Uh, two nights ago, you came down with your first fever, the first one that wasn't caused by complex diseases we had shot into your legs with four-inch needles. You aren't normally a cuddly kid. In fact, trying to hug you is like trying to spoon a cactus. But the moment that fever hit you, you clung to my neck with the weight of an anchor, as still as the moment they first laid you on my chest in the delivery room. Sometimes I think that my memory is going to dull, and that in 10 or 15 years, I won't remember specifically what it felt like to see you for the first time that the perfect moment of meeting each other and not knowing each other's weaknesses will be lost as we find out that the other one isn't perfect. But as you clung to my neck the other night, I felt it again, and innocence laid bare in both of us, and I realized that without even knowing it, we continued to pull each other back to those first few minutes together, just a mother and her child. I understand now that it's not a matter of forgetting what it felt like. It's a matter of being reminded of it by living it over and over again. Love, Mama. That's really nice. We also have a story on B-Side today from a writer. Anna Cranage Conathan has a serious procrastination problem, and she decided to take it on. Her therapist suggested that she fully embrace her procrastination for a full 24 hours and actively avoid anything related to writing. Here's how it went. For weeks, subject, here and after referred to as writer, has avoided deadlines and failed to produce pages. Writer seems drawn to activities that can only be categorized as not writing. Hypothesis. The act of constant procrastination will prove nauseatingly monotonous, thereby discouraging writer from seeking future solace in such acts. 8.30 a.m. Woke up. <sighs> Fluffed pillows. Restabilized hospital corners. Straightened bed skirt. 8.35 a.m. Eight bowl of cereal. Calculated caloric intake. <gasps> 372. 8.47 a.m. Showered. 9.30 a.m. Attended free sample class at local yoga studio. And now, a few deep breaths before we rejoin the world. <sighs> 11 a.m. Drank free herbal tea in yoga studio lounge for an hour. 12 p.m. Let's put your tea in a to-go cup so you can rejoin the world now. Use bathroom left. 12.40, returned home, ate lunch. 1.17, hand washed all delicates, dirty or not, in vinegar water solution. Disliked vinegar odor, rewashed in woolite. 2.09, cleaned out fridge. Chucked expired items. Shared items on cusp with dog. 226. Brushed dog. Noticed dog's breath. Ugh, nasty. 
brush dog's teeth with meaty toothpaste. Result? Fresh, meaty breath. 253. Practice new breath of fire from yoga class. <laughs> Two fifty four got dizzy, laid down. Two fifty five noticed peculiar spots on ceiling. Two fifty six mopped ceiling. Three forty nine changed clothes, wet. Four o'clock cleaned blinds with super plus tampon on kebab skewer dipped in vinegar water solution. Highly recommend. Four forty one. Tried on entire wardrobe in various combinations. Assembled into seasonal outfits. Sorted out clothes for St. Vincent de Paul. Two hefty bags. 6.48 p.m. Tried on skinny jeans one more time, just to be sure. 6.52. Beat pillows and cushions with Louisville Slugger. Why don't my jeans fit? 7.32. Dinner. Lean cuisine. 804. Filled out survey from Hillary Clinton from Mail Heap. Began heartfelt letter regarding mercury poisoning. Realized was part of writing process. Stopped. 805. Ego Googled. Marveled at my lack of Google importance. 850. Played with makeup. Scared dog with Tammy Faye face. 925. Cleaned out medicine cabinet. Threw away expired drugs. Share drugs on cusp with dog. 10.04. Sorted photos by hairstyles and exes. Shredded unflattering pics and exes. 11.16. Sifted through the St. Vincent Paul bag again and rescued skinny jeans. Not ready to let go. 11.22. Updated Netflix list. Began a heartfelt letter to Netflix regarding obtaining a copy of 80s classic Night of the Comet. Realized was part of the writing process and stopped. 11.43, blasted dust from computer keyboard with can of air. Fun. 11.44, chase dog with can of air. Real fun. 11.46, brush teeth, polish teeth with can of air. 11.52, tucked into bed, went to sleep, never felt so accomplished in my whole life. Conclusion. Writer's house is clean. Writer may have missed career opportunity as professional dilly-dallier. Writer has likely broken self of desire to ever write again and has plans to spend tomorrow deep conditioning dog's hair, sorting book collection alphabetically, and planting garden in backyard of rented house. Experiment has backfired. That was Anna Kranich-Conathan. Anna is a screenwriter, and she recently moved to Washington, D.C. with her husband, who is not a Republican, but now works for them. So when you come down to thinking, you know, are you going to are you going to do this for the rest of your life, Heather Armstrong? Are you, um, is Deuce.com going to be there forever? And is this your life now? Is your work your life? Well, I think um, we're taking this, you know, we're taking this. I would say one day, one week, one month at a time, and I, I know that I'm lucky, and I know I know I hate to use this because it sounds so Mormon, but I feel really, really blessed, and um, yeah, it really you know it, it pays off to worship Satan. 
<laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Heather Armstrong of Deuce.com. Thanks so much for talking to B-Side. We feel very honored. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of B-Side. Thanks to Flojo and Laszlo. It has been a lot of fun. Say goodbye, guys. Come on, say goodbye. <laughs> They're very jumpy, running in circles. Silly bassets. Contributors in this episode are Eve Abrams, Allison Rahm, and Anna Kranich-Conathan. The editor was Lissa Mudd. The producers are Matt McCleskey and Seth Warren. The show producer was Marie Matheson, and of course the executive producer is Tamara Keith. I'm Andrea Seabrook. Special thanks this time to Heather Armstrong, also known as Deuce. You can visit her blog at deuce.com, that's D-O-O-C-E.com. See you next time on B-Side.